And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. And yes, it's an SMT day. And you may wonder what... That stands for if you're a new listener. Sounds like a kind of a sandwich, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds like a sandwich. Well, yeah, at least a sandwich. It actually stands for Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge. I'm in Toronto today. And we have a number of cool things name. we want to... came up with it. They what? What came up with what? So it's a cool name. I wonder who came up with that. Well, I had to think anyway, long and hard for it, and I listened to all kinds of possible entries for the name, and... I took some of those entries and I kind of put them together and get a meeting of the it up meeting, a little naming bit. committee. The naming committee. Actually, Bruce was the the main contributor to the title "Smoke Mirrors and the Truth." And it's I came good. up with the name "Good Talk" too. I didn't get any credit for that. You you did it all. You did Thank it you. all. You. I mean, there we go. There, there's, there we go. There's little you didn't come up with. That's nice. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well. You're welcome. Um, okay. Here's your history lesson for today. It was thir- 30 years ago this summer, Jean Chrétien walks into the Liberal caucus room to what he described as a bunch of nervous Nellies. Why were they nervous? They were nervous because Brian, Brian Mulroney had stepped down as prime minister at the time. And the Conservatives in their leadership convention had voted for Kim Campbell. And in that summer of 1993, Kim Campbell was way ahead in the national opinion polls. She was on their way to a huge majority government. And Liberal MPs were nervous. Nervous Nellies, Jean Chrétien called them. So what happened? Well, a couple of months later, the election was held and Kim Campbell returned with two seats. Two, and she wasn't one of them. Those conservatives were wiped out. Liberals won a majority government, the first of three for Chrétien. So the issue now is we haven't heard the term nervous Nellies on the part of the Liberal caucus uh, by certainly any of them or anybody in the Prime Minister's office, but you wonder whether that's going to be the tone that will be taken today as the Liberals meet in caucus and a caucus retreat in London, Ontario. And Justin Trudeau just returned from a, uh, well, let's say, attendance at a summit. And some problems with the airplane and some questions about how effective he'd been at the summit and all that. But Liberal MPs very nervous about polls which show them upwards of up to 14 points down. So there's your history. There's your context mm. for today. Is this a nervous Nelly situation? How's Justin Trudeau going to handle this? Can he handle it? No. It, look, it, I think if the term nervous Nelly, which is what Jean Chrétien intended, I think when he used it, is meant to imply uh, that people have kind of irrational fears, exaggerated fears, are, are, are kind of overly pessimistic about their situation. I don't think this is that. Uh, I think the, I think there is a lesson uh, to draw from that period of time. 
but the one that I uh, would take from it, and I remember that uh, that the campaign, that campaign in '93, and I remember the run up to it, the leadership campaign in the Conservative Party, because I worked for Jean Charest in that, and I saw what happened in in the Conservative Party, which was that it became quite divided between Kim Campbell, who was a you know very qualified uh, person and candidate, but who wasn't all that effective at campaigning and that over the course of the leadership, she went from having a really strong lead, a massive lead to a very small lead by the time the convention rolled around. And in my view, if there had been one more week in that race, Jean Charest would have won that leadership race. And who knows how that subsequent election would have turned out. Um, But the problem that was happening in the conservative party then does have some parallels in the liberal apparatus right now. Um, once they settled the leadership, tried to pull the party together, it was still the case that they were campaigning as uh, kind of incumbents. It was not a great campaign. They did not. They had not done enough preparation. They had not really estimated the strength of Jean Chrétien and the Liberals in that contest. And they almost uh, uh, took it for granted that people at some point were going to say, well, we can't have this guy. Uh, he's in no way qualified. He's not going to appeal to people. Remember, they ran an ad sort of making fun of of uh, whether he was qualified. I mean, people debate whether or not the intent of the ad was to make fun of his physical deformity, that the way that his, uh, his mouth aligns when he speaks. I don't know whether that was the case or not, but it was certainly perceived that way. And during that campaign, the Liberals always had the conservatives on their back foot. It was a defense uh, scenario almost every day in that campaign. And so what I, when I think about that experience and where the liberals find themselves now, I think the caucus members who are restive, and I think there are a good number of them who are restive, I think they're worried that come the time of the next campaign, they'll be too timid, too defensive, uh, unable to articulate what it is that they're fighting for. They'll rely too much on the idea that you can just demonize or belittle or otherwise marginalize your competitor. Um, and they're savvy enough to know that those are mistakes that have been made by incumbents uh, before. And they're savvy enough to kind of look at their situation and say, we feel like we're on defense all the time right now. Um I don't think they're wrong about that. So restiveness of this sort is the kind of productive chemistry that is necessary for a party to uh, survive and thrive. It has to be uh, something that happens within parties because that level of energy and creativity uh, does dissipate uh, the longer a government is in office and it needs to find a way to, you know, combust again. It needs to find a way to, uh, uh, to be on offense sometimes, not always on defense, which is what it seems like it is to me now. So what has to happen uh, today and tomorrow? I mean, when you consider that ever since the cabinet shuffle, which was, what, six weeks ago now, um, we've witnessed something in the Liberal Party that we haven't witnessed, well, since 2015, when Trudeau won his first of the three elections he's won. And that is... Liberal MPs speaking out, seemingly a couple more every week, initially anonymously talking to some reporters. I think it was Chantel, actually, was the first one to actually mention this 
which was like 48 hours after the shuffle, she said she was picking up vibes that weren't, weren't good for uh, Trudeau from within the caucus. And ever since, there it's bi- since then, it's built, and now it's not so anonymous anymore. MPs are speak- some MPs are speaking out. Still a minority group, but nevertheless, this hasn't, we haven't witnessed this before like this. Um, so, you know, Trudeau, I assume, unlike his father, who used to claim he never read the papers or watched television news, although I used to sit, I used to sit up in the parliamentary gallery, the press gallery, when I was a member in Ottawa and Trudeau was the prime minister, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister. You'd look down, you'd see him, you'd see him reading like newspaper clippings every once in a while, right? Um, Anyway, assuming Justin Trudeau reads this stuff and watches TV, and I believe he does, I think you believe he does too, he must know, be very aware of what's going on, whether his staff is telling him or not. And so he's got to have an approach when he walks in that room later today and uh, deals with MPs both, you know, in the caucus room and and outside of it. What's he got to say? Put your uh, strategist slash advisor slash observer slash analyst hat on what what does he got to do what can he do or is it too late well is it too late is the is a is a really good question um i don't think it's too late but it might be too late but let's assume for the moment that it's not um and by that, I, I guess I, what I mean is uh, I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion that the Conservatives will win the next election. But I think um, if the Prime Minister continues to operate more or less the way he has been operating, then I think it's very unlikely that he can beat uh, Pierre Polyev. Um, so assuming that he wants to stay, which is what he said, and he wants to, um, you know, he believes that he can beat Pierre Polyev, I think that the thing that he needs to do with his caucus um, and I know we're going to talk about this uh, situation in the United States with uh, uh, with Speaker McCarthy. Uh, it's kind of the, you know, where you've got this kind of uh, group of congressmen saying, you must obey us to the speaker, the leader, essentially, of their party. That's not what needs to happen here. Um, but there does need to be more openness on the part of the prime minister and the people around him to hearing what it is that MPs are experiencing at the doors. Uh, and to having a uh, a clear plan, something other than don't be nervous Nellies, uh, to go back to your Cretchen quote. It, they need to hear something that feels as though um, the five alarm fire that they are experiencing when they're out in their communities is noticed by the people in charge of their political operation. I don't think they've heard that so far. I don't think they've sensed that it has resulted in policy ideas that will help. But more importantly, I think they sense a, a kind of a timidity almost in the political response of of, of the government, um, a kind of a pulling of the punch, a, a, a kind of an uncertainty. It's almost like a, a boxing metaphor that they're just staggered. They're a little bit kind of dazed as a political operation. And so I think they need to not hear him uh, rile him up with some sort of barn burning speech uh, not hear anything that sounds like, you know, I don't want to hear anybody else say another bad word about what we're doing or how we're doing it or how I'm doing. Um, I don't think either of those things will particularly work. But I think there needs to be an exchange. I think he needs to ask people to talk to him more, 
about what they're hearing, to share ideas about how to deal with um, the issues that people think the government hasn't been uh, good enough on, how to talk about the conservative a challenge and less maybe be less preoccupied with the NDP challenge, which is always there. But um, most of those MPs who will be in that caucus meeting who are worried about losing their seats, they're worried about losing their seats to conservatives, not to NDP candidates. And so their preoccupation is going to be, what are we going to say? Um, not just about this guy, but about our ideas and about why our why we would be a better choice at the next election. That's the conversation that needs to to bring them together. And then they need to be able to exit and kind of watch um, how that manifests itself as a strategy going into the fall and through the winter. Big question marks about whether or not that's the energy that he's going to bring, the prime minister is going to bring to that meeting. Um, hope for his sake and his party's sake that that's, that's the contest that they're preparing to have. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree what you've um, uh, about what you've said, but I I do also agree that the the government through the prime minister and his ministers has got to get their act together on what they stand for on the big issues of the day. And if the big issue of the day is housing, I mean there are big issues out there: inflation and climate change and and that and some of uh, and some of those things. We kind of know what they stand for, but housing is the emerging issue. They went to a great deal of trouble in the shuffle to put in a communicator in Sean Fraser, the, the Liberal MP from Atlantic Canada. And I, I don't know him, but I've watched him. I've seen him um, speak to an audience. He's good. He's, a, he's absolutely a good communicator. But I watched him the other day on, on Vashi Capello's show on Sunday. And, you know, he, he actually, he didn't seem, at least to me, to have an answer on any of the questions Vashi asked. Now, I know it's only six weeks on the job, and they're trying to develop a, a new approach on housing. But if you're a communicator, and if you're going to go to agree to go on a show like that, you really should have something to say other than, we don't know yet, or, you know, we're working on it, or stuff like that. You've got to have an answer. And right now, they need answers um, if they're going to try and, you know, stop the slide or at least begin the turning of the ship around a little bit. Um, yeah, I think that's interesting. Sorry, Pete, go ahead. Well, no, that, that's that's all. That's the point I wanted to make. If you're going to if you're going to have a new message, something that will buoy your caucus and encourage the people that you haven't sort of given up. You got to have that message. You got to say something. You got to say it now. I mean, it's not like there 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 hasn't been. It's not like housing just suddenly became an issue. This is the problem I see sometimes when when politicians become part of a government and they don't forget that they're politicians, but they kind of put that part of their. Um, their effort or their thought process aside. Uh, and I, I have a lot of time for Sean Fraser. I think he's a really good, really effective uh, minister. He's relatively new uh, in cabinet um, and he's dealing with the most hot button issue that the country has, which has arguably the, maybe other than climate change, um, 
it's the hardest to, to fix or to appear to be able to fix in any reasonable period of time. So he's dealing with a difficult situation. But to your point, um, the government doesn't seem able at a political level to say, well, if we can't tell people exactly how we're going to solve this, or if we can't tell people exactly the answer to the question that's being asked, we better give them a better answer than we have been giving them. And that's not true just on housing. I watched um, a Mary Ng last night. She was in the at the London uh, caucus meeting or at the, the run up to it. And she was asked questions about the relationship between Canada and India and the stories coming out of that India trip about uh, our relationship with uh, with Modi and so on. And I I felt for her a little bit because she obviously didn't have um, a green light to say anything about the nature of that relationship that had some substance to it. And so she did what people in politics are kind of obliged to do sometimes, which is kind of skate around and uh, and kind of run out the time on the answer. Um, and I feel like something has gone wrong in the system in government where they can't say, well, we can't say nothing. So what are the three things that we can say that have some bite to them that people can hear and understand? Like, I'll come back to the India point in a minute, but... For Sean Fraser on housing, at the very least, if you say, this is what I found out about our problem with housing since I've taken this job. We built this many houses. This is what uh, slows down the pace of home building in this country. This is what needs to change in order for that to happen. We don't control all of those variables, but we're trying to get everybody together who does control those variables so that we can have a big national push. Now, I didn't see the interview. Maybe he said something that sounded like that. But I think at the very least, you need to be able to say, here's some facts. Here's our intent. Here are the steps that we're taking. And stay tuned. I, I feel that level of, uh, of structure and uh, politics in the government's message is missing uh, too often because ministers as ministers end up being reminded all the time of the things they shouldn't say, can't say yet, still to be discussed, still to be decided. Uh, somebody might get annoyed if you say this this way, or that message hasn't been approved at prime minister's office. All of those things enter the minds of ministers when they're doing these interviews. <clears throat> and the net effect isn't better messaging. It's less uh, messaging. And I think that's part of the of the problem that the government has. They, they need more people to take more shots. And by that, I don't mean attacks, but I do mean, you know, to put some energy behind what it is that they're saying. And they need that to happen every day. I want to ask a, a polyev question, but uh, you, you wanted to say, did you want to say something more about the India trip? You kind of yeah, I did. I was reading a, a couple of pieces about it and one in particular in, in the National Post, and uh, I know it's our, you know, it's one of our two national papers, and so I should give it, you know, all of its due. But <clears throat> sometimes I do find that the editorial direction of that change, uh, of that chain, is a bit prominent in the reporting of news. And yesterday's uh, piece that I read was a kind of an example of that. It essentially set up the notion that because 
um, the Indian leader, Modi, is unhappy with us um, and manifested that, showed that unhappiness in one way or another towards Trudeau during this G20 meeting, that this meeting was a failure for Canada. And I thought to myself, well, how did we get to a situation where uh, the judgment of whether we're having a good meeting with Modi is whether he's happy uh, with our position? Because our position, I mean, these are complicated issues, but our position, our idea isn't to make every leader in the world happy, especially leaders with whom we have significant disagreements. It should be to take our point of view to put it on the table, to try to have a respectful dialogue, to understand that there's some situations where we're going to be convincing and our pressure along with the pressure of others will have some effect. But also to understand that we live in a world where that's not going to happen sometimes, but it doesn't mean that we should suck up to uh, leaders with whom we have profound disagreements. So I, I found myself looking at that thinking, and you know this, Peter, you probably covered when uh, Joe Clark lost his bags. What year was that? 1970-something around there, right? Way back fall in the of annals seven, of time. Fall of 78. Fall of 78, right? So there can be a kind of a feeding frenzy. A plane broke down. Uh, this guy, you know, when they shook hands, it seemed cold. Um, and and I, I kind of feel like that tendency of, uh, of some in journalism to say, let's let's just make it a whole story of disaster. And uh, I think the Sun put a kind of a disaster frame on it on their on their Sunday Toronto Sun front page uh, because we want to tell a story about disaster. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know that that was a uh, well, I don't think that was a fair characterization of that G20. Uh, or the conversations. And I feel like if that's the only version that people get, um, it's no wonder that over time they end up feeling like, well, maybe this government has kind of completely lost its way, which I don't think is true. Um, but I think the government's problem isn't just fighting against Pierre Polyev. I do think that there is a, a, a fairly significant tilt in the part of the news media towards the um, the idea of a, a of a change and to the conservative challenge. It's funny, not man. across the board, right? It's funny you mentioned the uh, the Clark lost bag thing because the the, the, diff- the difference there on that one was Clark was going was trying to establish himself as a potential prime minister. He was opposition leader at that time. Um, he was going to take a world tour. He was going to go to a bunch of different countries. India was one of them. Did you go on that? Did, I, did you, you, did I did not. I did not. We we didn't have the cash. CBC to uh, afford that trip. Those were the days where you had to travel with like a crew of five. It was the early days of electronic news gathering, and it was very complicated and very expensive. Um, so I don't now think you just I, take a phone. Where you go? Yeah, exactly. But I think uh, on that particular trip, neither the uh, the major television networks went. Anyway, but a lot of others did go on it, um, mainly print, um, radio as well. Um, and, and what happened was it became this gang up, right? It wasn't just one news chain that were writing these stories. Everywhere he went, the story became, what was the latest screw up? Lost bags. He almost walked into a, you know, a, a guard in, a, in an honor guard parade, you know, a guy holding a sword or something. And, uh, you know, there was the famous quote in, in India where he asked an Indian farmer, 
what's the totality of your acreage? So this became this whole thing about the word totality, which is actually a it's word. It's a good example of, yeah. like, I don't want to stop your flow, but how bad a problem was it to say what's the totality of exactly, your acreage? Exactly, but that's... But everybody like, ah! Yeah, yeah, the, the O&R. So the, the thing was a disaster. Since that time, and what is that now, like 45 years ago? Um, since that time, no opposition leader has gone on that kind of a world tour <laughs> to establish their credentials in the foreign policy area. Like, do you see Pierre and Pauli- nobody throws a football back and forth on the lawn like in Robert front of Stanfield the buildings did. for the same reasons. Yeah. yeah, and Robert Stanfield, that famous 72, I think it was, or 74 mm-hmm. uh, election campaign picture where he threw a football back and forth uh, with reporters for, you know, five or 10 minutes, perfect throws, perfect catches. And then suddenly bobbled one and Doug ball, a CP for uh, photographer was a friend of mine. I mean, it, it was showed, you know, he, he had the picture of the fumble and he sent it in. In those days, you, you they just sent in their their roll of film, and the photo editor in Toronto went through all the pictures, and said, "Ah, this one, and bang, it ended up everywhere, and it was you know disastrous." But the point I was trying to make is, since those days, um, especially on the foreign tours, you don't see them happen that much, or if they happen, they happen like suddenly they appear there. They don't take a, a you know a, a gaggle of uh, journalists with them. I mean, you haven't seen Pierre Polyev turn up in uh, Kiev in the middle of the night to, uh, you know, meet Zelensky and talk about how he would do things in, in Canada or, or, or anywhere else. I mean, I'm not sure what foreign trips he's taken. Has he been to Washington? Has he been to Mexico City? Has he been to London? I don't know. Perhaps he has. Um, but you ju- it's just not as evident for those kind of reasons, you know, that uh, the littlest thing can become the biggest thing all of a sudden. And in a way, yeah. in a way, it's you know, Trudeau probably is saying, "Please don't send me to India again because I can't win." Uh, some of it for his own missteps. Remember the one a couple of years ago and the outfits he was wearing when he got, when he got there. I mean, it, it's not been a good time. All right, back that was up. not good. No, uh, the concern- we sound like the rest is history uh, podcast today. I like it. <laughs> We're going back in time into the uh, into the vault. Yeah, into the but uh, you know what? But one more point on this. Um, you know what you just said about well, Trudeau's probably thinking, "Don't send me here," you know, because it could go wrong. This is, uh, and I don't know that he is saying that. He no. tends to be, I think, you know, by character, a turn me loose, let me fight um, kind of guy. And so, but I do think that the apparatus of government tends to condition the prime minister to not do very many risky things, almost none. And sometimes you have to do risky things, especially if you're 10, 12, or 14 points behind in the polls. Contrast that attitude towards what you can do, the shots you could take, the surprises that you could generate with uh, this much ballyhooed moment where Pierre Polyev took the mic uh, on a flight back from the conservative convention filled with conservative party delegates to Calgary and, you know, gave a little rah-rah uh, commentary. Um, that has been seen by I don't know how many people, but it's a lot. And it was a good stunt for him. 
Um, I know that there are people who are outraged that the secure the safety equipment on the plane was used for something other than safety and that sort of thing. But um, and, you know, maybe there is some sort of process that should be followed there. I don't know. But I think just as a piece of raw politics, it wasn't the most uh, uh, imaginative thing in the world. But it's the kind of thing that people do when they're not afraid of making a mistake, when they're not being told, don't try something different. It's exactly, in my view, the kind of thing that Justin Trudeau would have done uh, eight years ago. Um, and everybody, as you saw in the in the at least the image that I saw, all the phones were out. Everybody was recording it, and you kind of knew at that moment that this was going to be a bit viral, and it was going to reach a lot of people. And the things that he was saying, he was saying with a smile, not a snarl. And he was saying them to people who would largely kind of go, you know, I kind of like, he's got a, almost a uh, an optimistic uh, bitterness towards the government uh, that is a different chemistry than he had a year ago. And I don't want to overdo it. But I really think that he is a significant challenger to this government, and they need to be willing to to try things that are as disruptive as the things that Pierre Polyev is trying to do. Not necessarily Im imitate him, but just remember that politics is such a game that you have to you have to take shots too. Optimistic bitterness. There's one for the uh, for the file. That's quite a term. <laughs> um, okay, we're going right a lot that, longer but... than. I'd plan to go on this. We still have a couple of things we want to do. I don't know whether we get to them all. But uh, one thing I know we have to get to is our uh, first break. So let's uh, do that, and we'll be right back. And welcome back. You're listening to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on uh, The Bridge. Wednesday edition. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in uh, Toronto. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or in your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on uh, YouTube, our YouTube channel, which gets more and more uh, viewers every week, and we're glad, uh, glad you're joining us. We also get lots and lots of comments on our YouTube channel. And I, you know, I see them, and I read them, and they're, they're mostly very constructive. Don't always agree with us. That's fine. You don't have to. Uh, there are, of course, uh, s some other kinds of comments as well, which I just find hilarious. There's, you know, they're, they're, there's some ways that we can make money too. I've noticed that people have ideas on how we can make money from home uh, by just <laughs> clicking on something. I haven't done it yet. Yeah, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Um, no, fair enough. But uh, anyway. Uh, we love comments and the Mansbridge podcast at gmail.com is also where you can send your comments and you may become a part of the Thursday, your turn show along with the random ranter. Okay. Uh, back briefly. Um, you mentioned you wanted to say something about Polyev. So, uh, and you know, a couple of days after their convention, uh, in Quebec city, which seemed to go pretty well for them. Um, you know, there were the normal issues that have come up that you highlighted last week, you and Chantel, about uh, mm -hmm. the potential problems uh, in a convention like that with a huge lead uh, that they seem to have in the polls. But you wanted to add something else. Yeah, I was reading a piece in the Star about this, and it kind of touched on a number of points that I thought were interesting. Um, 
and and including uh, things that happened on the floor of the convention, the conservative convention in Quebec City. Uh, one of the things was that um, Mr. Polyev's wife spoke and she talked about um, being an immigrant who lived in Quebec. She referred to uh, Quebecois uh, bands and uh, music that she was interested in. She, I think, said something that that a lot of Quebecers would kind of uh, um, appreciate, which is that she said she's, she spoke Quebecois. Um, and uh, I grew up in Montreal and Valleyfield and kind of know the difference between uh, Quebecois French and Parisian French and the idea that that people should be proud of the way that they speak French in, in Quebec, or at least acknowledge that it's unique. Um, so there was all of that, which I thought was quite uh, good. And of course, we we talked about this before, that her voice talking about him as a family man has been quite a helpful thing to his image with Canadians. He also, though, uh, said some things that, um, you know, in another time would have would have captured more attention. He said, vive la nation québécoise. Um, that's a very interesting statement for a conservative leader uh, to say. And there was a time when that would have been the headline uh, coming out of, of that meeting. And it's kind of indicative of the degree to which his political acumen is almost priced into the coverage of him now. Um, and again, uh, the silence, I think, on those kinds of points, and I don't think he was wrong to say that. I think that that what he's been trying to do is knit together the notion of if you thought the Conservative Party was anti-immigrant, um, anti-gay, uh, anti-Quebec uh, nationalism, uh, I'm going to tell you uh, my father's gay, uh, vive la nation québécoise, um, I'm pro-choice. Uh, and I'm here in Quebec because I, you know, really want your support. Uh, it was a more full-throated uh, embrace of the idea of winning seats in Quebec than we've seen from a conservative leader in a long time. Um, and it was, uh, I thought it was quite remarkable. And again, I, it's, you know, people are going to be surprised at how many positive things I'm saying about the way that he's approaching politics. I don't think that he has... Uh, the right policy prescriptions in many areas or any policy prescriptions in some areas. I'm just commenting on the quality of his politicking. And uh, I can't help but notice that it's it seems pretty effective and well thought out. The style is the man himself. Remember that one? You want history? 68. Pierre Trudeau. Uh, yeah. And... You know, there. Uh, listen, <laughs> there were a lot of things about. There were substantive things about last weekend that could cause some problems, and the split that showed within his party on some of those key uh, social conservative issues. Um, but if they walk away thinking about the kind of things you just mentioned and the little spiel on the plane. Um, by the way, you should notice note that you know he, he, he and or his advisors got approval first of all from the from the airline to do what he did using the flight attendants, you know, public address system to make his little speech. Um, 
Anyway. Look, I've heard people sing songs uh, using that apparatus. It's not like the only time it ever gets used is uh, for safety messages or, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, but they're usually I, hammered I was, when they do that and, and they're coming back from the Grey <laughs> Cup or something. Um, something like that. Anyway, whatever. Um, let's move on. Because, uh, uh, but I you said, know what? Though the uh, if <laughs> we go back I to, to every time I try to here. move on, you hear what he does. He kind of interrupts and plows forward with something else, making the timing difficult. But we'll get there. Go ahead, make your last we'll comment, and then we move on to the next subject. Remember the Aaron O'Toole convention. Uh, coming out of that convention, there was huge sense of disarray because the party said. We don't really accept climate change. And the previous uh, and the run up to it was there's a lot of pro-life MPs. And so Aaron O'Toole came out of his convention wounded um, by those internal pressures. I don't think that's true uh, about Pierre Poilievre. We didn't hear. Uh, I mean, there there were some motions adopted on the floor and they knew that they were going to have those kind of motions that were going to be controversial. But they had said before, uh, as you and I and Chantal talked about, that these weren't necessarily going to be party policy and that the leader wasn't going to be bound by those things. And in fact, the way that he communicated his approach uh, from a value standpoint and an intention standpoint was to was to reassure people that that those controversial uh, motions weren't going to be party policy. Now, whether that was being honest or not, remains to be seen, but at least it was well-managed, I think, from that standpoint. All right. Um, I'll stop. <laughs> we're not going to get to the Kevin McCarthy stuff, which is fine. Oh, no. Uh, which is fine. But what we are going to get to um, is this, I don't know, trending movement, should we call it, the I will not comply movement that we've seen on some social media. And let, let me give the quick background. Mm. Yesterday we did... We did our COVID update with Dr. Lisa Barrett from uh, Halifax, uh, and she was great, and she's kind of gave her, her sense, her opinion on where things stand uh, and how we should, as individuals, uh, react to the fact that there is clearly a bit of a resurgence going on, not a totally unexpected, by the way, uh, of COVID uh, this fall. Um, no mandates out there, but the knowledge that there are there's a new booster coming, there's also a vaccine on the RSV, which is also another um, a disease that is spreading that affects a respiratory situation. Um, but how one should approach this and who the vulnerable sectors are, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and how you may consider, as, as a personal venture, you might consider masking at, at some point in terms of Areas with big, uh, big crowds, you know, hockey games as they come onto the agenda in another few weeks, uh, that kind of thing. Anyway, it was a good conversation. Some nice reaction we've heard from uh, from listeners. But this new uh, trend, which, uh, quite frankly, I hadn't noticed till you pointed it out to me, Bruce. This, I will not comply issue tell me about what you're thinking on that you better explain it first of all yeah well look i think that the um, the reaction to the covid pandemic 
as we know, has become uh, a point, a major point in what is generally described as kind of the culture war that's, that's you know, a big part of our uh, democracy and certainly a huge part of the U.S. Uh, political system now. And um, I see it as having two two dimensions. There's obviously one dimension where people are saying, I didn't want to be told by government how to live my life, what to put in my body, what to wear on my face, uh, how to you know, organize my business, how, uh, what sorts of things I need to do in order to be able to travel on public conveyances, uh, all of that um, kind of rejection of the authority of government has become a much bigger a part of our political life because of the COVID experience. You know, I think some of those attitudes were obviously simmering there, uh, but COVID gave them a reason to become organized, highly visible, politically potent, and to attract the interest of leaders who are populist by nature, like Donald Trump. I think um, we now have a situation where um, we're heading into potentially another difficult COVID season. You talked to a, an expert in that. Um, I don't know how bad it's going to be, but I do know that relative to the to the first version of COVID, um, where people were anxious and there wasn't much resistance to the idea of get us a vaccination, please, as soon as you can, and where can we get the masks so that we can wear them and protect ourselves and protect other people? We're not going to have that experience again should a pandemic of a similar size um, and uh, and risk uh, appear on our. So it, what it does is it poses a question for both um, op the opposition party in Canada and for the government. Um, if it's a regular flu season style of a situation, um, maybe there won't be very much politics around it. But what we do see happening in the uh, in the in the political culture in America, and we've seen it come up north of the border a little bit. It was trending on Twitter in Canada. This "I will not comply" thing, and what that really is is that this this intersection of people um, having rejected the science and the evidence of what can keep them safe and keep society safe on COVID. And wanting to express that as an act of political activism uh, towards uh, incumbent governments. Uh, as I say, I think it, pose, it could pose a question for the conservatives as to whether or not they're going to be too closely aligned with um, those sentiments. Because those sentiments aren't, um, I will not comply because here are 1,500 scientists who say the vaccines don't work. They're, I will not comply because I... I love Trump or I hate Trudeau or, you know, my cousin, you know, said that their health was harmed because of the, the, the vaccination they got. It's a collection of, um, of attitudes that has less to do with science and more to do with the politics of it. On the government side, I think the question is uh, how bad would things have to be from a risk standpoint before government would ever again consider uh, the kind of mandates that were put in place um, the last time we went through this. And I, I do think that that is in part a political calculation, not just a science uh, calculation, because on some level, the non-compliance thing is not um, 
it's not just about if you if you put more rules in place or you yell your position louder that people will comply sometimes the opposite can happen and um so i think it's a an interesting dynamic i hope it goes away because i don't think that the idea of non-compliance as a as a, a as a thing in society is a, is a good thing um but i know that the politics of it are pretty sensitive and combustible i get a kick out of uh how trump is portrayed in some of these things as if he's the he's on side with all those who are not complying i mean he says he is too yeah this this is the guy who you know and good for him funded the uh vaccination program uh, the took research for program it. yeah d- d- then took credit for it um you know, suggested everything to, what was it, drinking toilet bowl cleaner or something or, you know, horse injections and whatever to, you know, prevent you from uh, from getting COVID. Uh, and then damn near died himself on the, in the hospital, so, so the story goes. Uh, when he had COVID, so the story goes. Um, uh, with, with all the latest technology and research materials available at that time. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those, you know, his uh, people in the medical community who were working on him said, you know, he c- came close to death in that couple of days. I, I find that a little surprising because he, he was up and around like in a couple of hours, 48 hours anyway. Um, anyway, he, he somehow portrayed <laughs> as the anti, the anti <laughs> vaccine, the, 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 the person who, who, who wouldn't comply. Um, don't remember though. He said, "Don't forget, he's six three, one eighty five, or some like oh, two fifteen or something." Like he's, he's two fifteen. He's as <laughs> he's as fit as Aaron Rodgers. He's like the same size. And, <laughs> That's and, right. Uh, wait, so that helped. But him he has sure. a better Achilles heel than Aaron Rodgers has. Fair enough. Yeah. Moment. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and the part we don't get to because it just would take too long to properly explain it is the uh, decision to move ahead and impeach or at least begin an, in, uh, an impeachment inquiry uh, into Joe Biden and this by the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who has clearly been pushed by not only the right wing in his caucus, but also by Trump. you got to do this because Trump clearly wants, if he's going to end up running against Biden again, he wants them to be on equal ground having both been impeached. But the whole thing's a joke. There is absolutely... Nothing so far, and hey, if they've got evidence, bring it forward, but they haven't brought it for any evidence forward so far, and they admit they have no evidence that Joe Biden has done anything wrong. His son, well, that's another story. But uh, Joe Biden, uh, apparently, but so far, there's no evidence he's done anything wrong. If there is, then go for it. Have your impeachment inquiry. Um, nevertheless, that's all happening, and... Uh, there you go. I've wrapped it up. There's nothing more to say on that subject. Are you sure? Can I, can I add one thing? You can have one minute of time on this. That's all but I, I can't. Mean. But I can't uh, can't give you more than that. People should listen to this this quote by Representative Matt Gates of Florida from the floor of the uh, of the House. You got it. Play because, it because if you've got it there, play it. All right. All right. Hang on. Here we go. I rise today to serve notice. Mr. Speaker, you are out of compliance with the agreement that allowed you to assume this role. The path forward for the House of Representatives is to either bring you into immediate 
total compliance or remove you pursuant to a motion to vacate the chair. Mr. Speaker. That quote, I mean, you and I have watched American politics for a long time. I've never seen anything like that in terms of the, the, the way that American politics works typically is that the speaker has a lot of authority, a lot of influence in the the arguments that uh, preceded this are normally held behind closed doors, that there is a real sense of we wouldn't do this um, publicly because our opponents would take advantage of it or because it's just not done. It's not the way that politics in a political party should work. But um, Kevin McCarthy is a very unique character, and this is a very unique time in American politics where you've got these populist right-wing politicians who think it's their role to hold him to account publicly um, and to challenge his position uh, if he doesn't agree. And the strangest part of all is that he seems to go, all right, if this is what you need me to do, I'm going to do it. It's not a great time in American politics. No. And uh, the interesting thing about this one is there seem to be a number of Republicans offside, uh, both in the House of Representatives, certainly in the in the Senate, uh, and also on the uh, uh, on the analyst side of things, Republican analysts and commentators. I heard one this morning say, worst speaker in the history of the United States. Yeah, there you go. All right. Uh, listen, thanks, Bruce, and thanks for bringing the clips along today. We have a whole new role for Bruce on Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth now. He brings the clips. Oh, I can just sit here back. to serve. Yeah, no, I'm in excellent. compliance. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> you will comply. Um, all right. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Bruce will be back on Friday, of course, for Good Talk with Chantel. Tomorrow it's uh, your turn and the Randa Branter. So join us for all that. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. 